0: Welcome to the Unpacked Podcast, where we seek to simplify big ideas on faith, life, and leadership by having conversations with those who know stuff that help simplify things for the rest of us. Well, welcome to episode number 31 of our podcast. My name is Skylar Elmer. I'm the host. And I hope that this conversation today will give you the encouragement you need to make a greater impact in your life. Today, we are having a critical and very meaningful conversation. We are talking about the issue of Christian deconversion. Uh, There's a growing trend over the last several years of seeing this group called the nuns increase. And when I say nuns, don't think, you know, Catholic nuns, but those who when asked on surveys, what is your religious affiliation? They say, none. And at the same time of this uh, increase we also see a decline among evangelicals. And the burning question for many of us is why? Why are Christians walking away? Why are we seeing this number in uh, increase among the nuns? I mean, is there something in how churches are approaching ministries or something about how Christians are approaching life? Is this unique to our culture, and our time, and on the questions kind of go. And our guest with me today is John Marriott. A little bit of background on John. Um, as he'll kind of tell us in our conversation, is after watching one of his athletic heroes take a leap out of faith, he felt a strong desire to know where things went wrong. And this led John to do a PhD dissertation on why people deconvert in the process to this. Uh, it's a really important conversation, so I asked him if he would just talk about his book, The Anatomy of Deconversion, um, I think you will find this a really eye-opening and helpful conversation. So let's go ahead and jump into my conversation with John. Well, it is um, it is really exciting to have John Marriott on our podcast. John, welcome.
1: Oh, Skyler, thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. And it's always uh, a privilege when anyone reaches out and uh, wants to discuss uh, the topic today. And so thank you for having me.
0: Oh, man. I'm... I'm excited. I know we were kind of talking a little bit. You have a um, uh, somewhat of a depressing book, but it's, it's an incredibly helpful book um, just to understand some of the things that has, in, in a sense, always existed, but seems to be more public lately. Um, but before we kind of dive into that, can you share a little bit about yourself, um, your story, and what do you do?
1: Sure. I live in Los Angeles. I work at Biola University. I'm the research and programming coordinator for the Center for Christian Thought. And I also teach um, in an adjunct role as in the philosophy department uh, in the undergrad. And then I teach a little bit at Talbot School of Theology. I'm originally from Canada and uh, my wife and I moved out here in 2005. Uh, we have two kids and both of them were born out here and um I can't think of very many uh, other interesting things to to say, but uh, I'm happy to to be here. And um, yeah, I mean, maybe there's something that you can think of that you might want to ask.
0: Well, John, you have a pretty intriguing journey uh, that has kind of led you to write um, multiple books, as well as go and get your doctorates. Uh, can you share a little bit about what your focus has been, both pastorally and professionally? And maybe a, a little bit about what the spark was that got you started on that journey.
1: Yeah, so my area of interest and in research is in deconversion. And I, I think we'll talk about that in a little bit, define it a little bit more. But, um, uh, you know, I lived in Canada for most of my life. I spent a few years there uh, pastoring, involved in church work, came out to Los Angeles to get uh, some more training, ended up doing a PhD. And um, the uh, topic i decided to, to look into was was deconversion and what really spurred me into taking a look at that was um, an encounter that i had a number of years earlier i was on a track i was on i was at university i was on a track scholarship and um, my event was the triple jump hmm. and i was uh not performing up to par i was having a really difficult season and uh on the verge of just feeling like i should just throw in the towel And quit. And uh, I was at Florida State for the uh, Florida State Relays, which is a really big track meet and uh, really not looking forward to competing. And a friend of mine came out and said, uh, hey, you'll never guess who's in the weight room. And uh, I said, you know, I don't I have no idea. Uh, Just tell me. And uh, they said, Jonathan Edwards is in the weight room. Now, Jonathan Edwards, mm. probably maybe the folks who are listening might um, make them think of Jonathan Edwards, the theologian,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: but uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, the one that mattered to me was uh, the world record holder in the triple jump because he was more uh, more well known for his faith than he was for his amazing jumping ability. He had broke the world record three times the year before. He jumped over 60 feet, a quarter of an inch. The first person to ever do that. Mm. First person to ever break 18 meters. In the triple jump. He was uh, named the track and field athlete of the year. The British press were enamored with him. He became uh, maybe one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known Christian in uh, the UK because he was uh, so committed to following Jesus that he had missed previous uh, the previous Olympic games and a previous world championship because they fell on a Sunday. And he felt mm-hmm. that he shouldn't be competing on a Sunday. And the British press were impressed with his um his jumps but they could find really no uh, skeletons in his closet as far as his character and his history went and so they were more impressed with even that and 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 i was just really drawn to him and his story about a guy who had wrestled through his own problems uh, in the triple jump he had gone through a period where he was really struggling as well and then on the back side of all this he comes out breaks the world record three times world champion and uh, here he is a really committed Christian so I was really excited to find that someone who had become my hero was uh, right where I happened to be a guy from the UK and, and me competing as a Canadian and here I am we're both at Florida State University it felt like God had arranged the events of the universe just for me to run into him because if there was one guy that I thought that I could speak with and who could help me it would be him and so Sure enough, I go in, there he is lifting weights. I wait till he's done. I go up to him, I tell him my story, and I try and convince him that we have all these things in common and hope that he would have some compassion on me. And he says, you know, I'm not a great uh, coach, but um I, you know, my coach is, and so I can have him take a look at you. But how would you like to go out for lunch? And so the next day we go out for lunch, we pick up his wife from a Bible study. So t- we talked about the Bible. He tells me how he wants to go to Dallas Theological Seminary when he's all done and that he wants to uh, get into full-time Christian ministry. Wow. And uh, it was just really encouraging. And then he won the Olympic gold medal that, that later that year. He won the world championship a couple years later. Wow! And wow. so then he retires as the most decorated uh, triple jumper of all time. I mean, he's won it all, done everything. And he started to host the longest-running Christian television show, uh, in, in the world, which was called Songs of Praise, put out by the BBC, where he was the, the uh, host uh, for a show for shut-ins that would broadcast Christian programming every Sunday morning. Wow. And um, and he was, uh, again, just living out his Christian faith in, in ways that were encouraging to me. And then in 2007, I Googled him because I wondered what he was doing. And I was totally shocked and really upset by the headline that I found that said, Uh, Triple Jumper Jonathan Edwards takes a leap out of faith. Mm. Wow. And I read the article and found out that he had come to the conclusion that Christianity wasn't true and that God didn't exist anymore. Mm. And so that's what started me doing research and trying to get to the bottom of what it was that happened to him. And then I found out that he's just one of thousands and thousands of people who have uh, done the same thing.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean, the Internet is just, it is jam-packed with deconversion stories how did i mean how did you handle that uh, was that did that kind of shake you up a little bit
1: yeah i mean i i wondered for sure how it was even possible um, I, I wondered how it was possible for, for him because uh, although i didn't know him uh, personally at a deep level i had read his story i had had his i bought his biography uh i had meaningful conversations with him uh you know, if ever there was somebody who was really committed to following Jesus, it was it was Jonathan Edwards. I mean, he passed off an Olympic shot at the Olympics. He's the modern day Eric Little from Chariots of Fire, if that movie makes that reference mm-hmm. makes sense, right? And and I, you know, I mean, even down to small things. When we got in his car to go pick up his wife, and he started the car up, uh, he had it. Tuned, the radio tuned to a, a Christian radio station, and we talked theology the whole time. This was a guy who, who knew his Bible, who seemed to be quite committed, and, and to f- try and understand how someone like that, not someone who was on the fringe, not somebody who just had made a, you know, a sort of a passing profession at some point, but somebody who, who really seemed to be uh, deep into the Christian world, could leave his faith was troubling to me experientially, and then it was troubling to me theologically. And uh, when I found out there were way more people like him than I ever imagined, uh, then that became even uh, more troubling because I thought, um, you know, why is this happening? Yeah,
0: man. You know, so, so you wrote a book. Um, you've, you've written many books um, just kind of addressing this, but you, you, you recently just um, re- released a book called The Anatomy of Deconversion. Um, and I want to dive into the anatomy part of it. But before we do, can you just explain um, really quickly, what do you mean by um, deconversion and why is it relevant? You know, um, it's kind of a buzzword uh, today. So is, is it more than just simply a buzzword? Is there, is there more um, meat to that bone?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. When I use the word deconversion or when when people use the word, uh, usually it's intended to indicate almost a reversal or an undoing of a previous commitment that someone has made. And it's almost always in terms of conversion to a religious faith. A Muslim can deconvert. A Mormon can deconvert. A Christian can deconvert. And when someone deconverts, they uh, say, I don't believe in the claims that I once held to and that I once affirmed. And also, I'm removing myself from the community that I was once a part of. And uh, it's, it's kind of like an unraveling of their identity and their belief and their association with a particular community. And, and so that's what I mean by uh, a, a deconversion. And, and, and is it just a, a, a buzzword or is there something more to it? Um, the statistics would show uh, and and there's about 20 different studies that that I could cite, and there's a, and I cite a bunch of them in the book that that people are leaving, and it's not just Christians, but people are leaving religious commitment, religious faith, uh, in significant numbers today, mm. and uh, the, those trends seem to continue. Uh, in, two, in 2015, the Pew Research Foundation uh, said that uh, for every person who becomes a Christian, four leave the Christian faith, wow. and sometimes that's just through attrition, where they just say, well, I just don't really identify with this. They kind of just drift away. And then some make a clean break and say, I'm leaving this whole thing and I renounce it. The Pine Tops Foundation in 2018 uh, did their own study and they came to the conclusion that we're seeing the largest transmission or the the largest um, uh, sort of uh, shift of of numbers uh, when it comes to the the Christian church, maybe in in, in the history of the, the church, as far as they can as far as they can discern. So they're predicting that within 30 years, we will see a drop of about 30 million young people who mm. who once would have identified as Christians to one degree or another, and now no longer do. About 1 million young people per year will remove themselves from the Christian faith. Now are, are those people who were on the fringes and were just kind of lightly hanging around and were identified as Christians, kind of in name only, or were they uh, deeper involved in the church with a with a more robust understanding? That's an open question, but um, what's not really an open question is, is that um, we're definitely seeing uh, the, the, the numbers of, of Christians and certainly evangelicals um, uh, dropping in relation to the number of people who identify as nuns or uh, unbelievers.
0: Wow. So is that, is that kind of predominantly um, within the United States? Is that kind of a Western context? Is that bigger and broader than that?
1: Yeah, that's a, the, I'm really glad you asked that question because the, the subtitle of the book is is of Deconversion, Keys to, uh, is, is Deconversion, uh, Keys to uh, Maintaining Your Faith in a Culture That's Abandoning Christianity. And the the uh, publisher was going to put first uh, In a World that's abandoning christianity but uh, we decided that world is not the best title because in other parts of the world christianity is is exploding right it's growing by leaps and bounds in places like china and in the global south christianity is really growing where it is shrinking is in the west and uh, particularly in in europe and in the united states and in canada and in in places like australia so any place that's kind of characterized by the west there is a, a decrease in the number of people who are identifying as Christians and an uptick in the number of people who are identifying as either nuns or agnostics or atheists
0: Wow that's good that's that's good to know so when you know I one of the things that I thought was fascinating as I was kind of reading through your book is as you talk about deconversion um, you kind of unpack that there's a little there's a lot of bit of a process to the um, to somebody who's kind of Um, walking away from the faith. Can you um, explain what that process is and how did you come across um, uh, the fact that this is a process and not just this kind of clean break?
1: Well, uh, it's usually when you ask someone why they no longer believe. So I've asked a lot of people. I've sat down and interviewed a lot of people and read a, a lot more narratives. There are thousands of narratives online. and If you spend enough time going through those, uh, you'll find that there does seem to be some sort of a generalized pattern that you can, that you can discover. And if you ask someone, why don't you believe anymore? Almost always the answer will be because I don't think that it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's never because I want to sin. It's never because, uh, I just want to do my own thing. It's, uh, it, it, it sometimes is because, uh, I can't identify with the values anymore, but, that also is a weaker kind of way of saying, I don't believe that it's true. And, um, and, and that's why people say they don't believe. And when you ask, okay, why don't you believe that it's true? That almost always breaks down into three different categories. There's the intellectual category where someone says, I don't believe that it's true because there are too many contradictions in the Bible, or I don't believe that it's true because science and the Bible don't line up. Or because there's just not enough evidence that i can commit myself to to this so there's intellectual problems then there are experiential problems where someone might say you know i've been so hurt and wounded by people in the church that if this is what christianity produces and in my experience this is what it produces hypocritical judgmental intolerant people then it certainly can't be true because so- Anything that's true wouldn't produce this kind of experience. And then the yeah. third category would be uh, would be more along the lines of values. And someone might say, uh, you know, I, I grew up as a Christian, and I was wholeheartedly into the the faith. And then I picked up the Bible for myself, and I started reading it. And I started to say, you know, the God of the Old Testament, so violent. Like, mm. that's not like the Jesus in the New Testament that I know. And then I started to really think about hell. And do I really think that God is sending the vast majority of the world to, to hell where they will burn and suffer forever in some kind of a divine torture chamber? Or maybe it's something to do with contemporary values. And it might be something along the lines of, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I see that the Bible says that an active homosexual lifestyle is outside of the will of God and it constitutes simple behavior but i can't accept that and if i have to accept this morality then i can't accept christianity because i can't accept something that is so clearly and self-evidently moral to me that two people can just love whoever they want so the first phase is usually some sort of a crisis that occurs because they've come they've encountered an intellectual um, a moral or uh, an experiential kind of a problem so that would be the first phase mm. The second phase would be, um, then they would say, all right, uh, now I'm going to go on a kind of a quest and try and figure out what, what the truth really is and, and uh, whether or not there are some good answers to this because maybe I do want to remain a Christian. Maybe my problems are intellectual. And and these, answer, these questions can be answered because someone somewhere has addressed the problems for me. Uh, um, and generally, if, if people are willing, to 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 look within the Christian worldview and to turn to apologetics, the, a significant number of those people will find what they're looking for and find a way to remain a Christian because they'll be willing to accept those answers. There's a slight bit of confirmation bias that that goes on there. Mm. For people who step outside and say, I'm going to suspend judgment on this whole thing, on Christianity, I'm going to step outside and I'm going to look back on it, kind of with a critical, unbiased, objective eye. And and usually that's a shorthand for, I'm going to take a the, sort of the secular, critical approach. A, a, a lot of those folks tend to not come back because they say, you know, these apologists, they're biased and they, they have a, you know some skin in the game and they have an agenda and they want to prove Christianity is true, but... The archaeologist, you know, at the state university, he's not trying to prove anything. He's just saying what the facts are. And sometimes there's a bit of a a naivety about the approach that comes from the supposed secular objective side of things. Yeah. So that's the second stage. There's sort of a a quest that goes on. The third stage, sometimes people skip the third stage, but sometimes the third stage is people say, "Um, I, I still would like to remain a Christian, but I wonder if there's a way that I can do so where... I can kind of um, come at it from a different perspective, right? So I've, I've been taught hell is this torture chamber for my whole life, but I'm going to go back and actually reevaluate what the Bible says, read some other approaches to the matter. And 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 maybe I can still maintain a belief in hell, but it looks a bit different than what it used to look like. Mm. And maybe I can also do the same thing with with creation. And maybe I can sort of do the same thing with predestination. and and And, and, and so there's this kind of, approach where where there's a a seeking out of being a christian otherwise than what you thought you had to be and then if none of those that works then there is this part where you say i i I no longer affirm the beliefs and i may be an agnostic and then some people will go a step further and say um no i I actually denounce and deny the beliefs because now i'm convinced that they're not true and then in the end coming out and, and, and identifying as um, someone who is at full of a full Christian so that's kind of the, the progression
0: yeah uh, John um, I, I think it was the um, uh, the not the last step but the step right before that um, where they kind of begin to reevaluate some of those doctrinal foundations um, it, is is that kind of where we would see a little bit of what we'd kind of um, and not the not the, the philosophical uh, roots to this, but um, kind of the modern day deconstruction um, take place with with um, uh, Christians and progressive, uh, pro, I guess more progressive leaning Christians. Is that kind of where we would see that that stage at right there?
1: Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly where it is, and and I think that I, I think that there is a healthy form of deconstruction that that can and actually should take place in in most young Christians' lives. Um, for a faith to become their own, they do need to think about it. They do need to evaluate it. They need to go to the text of the Bible and say, hey, if Jesus is Lord, I want to follow what he teaches. Um, and I've kind of been given this package for most of my life and told this is what he says and this is what the Bible teaches. But now I'm growing up, I'm intellectually coming of age, I'm a little bit more responsible now to think well about uh, what I believe. And and so if people can approach it, I think – from a particular angle, then um, this is what the reformers, you know, used to call always reforming, always rethinking and refining our beliefs. And I'm in the process now of of trying to write a small book, like 120 pages that wants to say like, how do you about having a faithful deconstruction where you take apart some of the beliefs that you have, you lay them on the table, you analyze them, you hold them up to the light of scripture, and then put them back together in a way that you think is faithful to following Jesus, and um, and that's the stage where that you just referred to is that is that part. Because I, I think that there are a lot of people who are doing that, but but not doing it within some some guardrails that will keep them within sort of a historic Orthodox Christian faith.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, when when's that book being published?
1: I haven't finished writing it yet, so. <laughs> When it does, I'll let you know.
0: Okay, yeah, I was thinking it would be very helpful um, to to do some kind of um, sermon series addressing a, a lot of this and just uh, um, you know, kind of resourcing the church, and you know, that's um, kind of part of part of the reason why you know we're having this conversation, um, John. So the big question is why. Um, why I mean, why do Christians um, uh, go through this sort of not all, but why do Christians deconvert? I mean, is, is there a common theme, common root causes uh, that kind of put people on this um, uh, track or this journey toward uh, deconverting?
1: There, there are a handful of things I think that that really come to, that, that play a factor in this. One of them is just the. That this is, we've actually sort of seen as millennials and Gen Z start to kind of see that the statistics on deconversion track with, with those folks, that you don't see a whole lot of people from the baby boomer generation or even Gen X kind of leaving their faith in the way that people are today. So. Has this always happened? Yes, it's always happened. But I think that the, there are studies that, will, that show that you can make a good case that it really does happen at a higher rate and in significantly greater numbers than it has in the past. And a lot of that correlates with the exposure to information that no one has had in the past. So, for example, I grew up in this northern Ontario town. We had one uh, Christian bookstore. We had no Internet. Every Sunday, there was only Christian programming on television. I could get a Christian radio station. If the cloud cover was right, it would bounce off Lake Superior as it came out of northern Michigan, and I would be able to pick it up and listen to Christian radio. Um, the, books that, the, you know, the, the books that were published to encourage my faith and support my faith were easily accessible to me, and there were lots of uh, ministries out there that I was aware of that did apologetics and defended the faith, not to mention that every Sunday I gathered with a community of people who believe the same thing as me. Now, fast forward to, you know, 2020, and there are, uh, the internet has has made uh, all of the information that wants to counter the Christian claims easily accessible. Like it, you carry it around in your back pocket, right? So there are now, uh, there are, Uh, networks. There's there's an actual uh, network or or, or set of programs that you can go to on the internet that just broadcast atheist um, television programs. Uh, There are now, uh, there are more atheist publishing houses that are out there than ever before. There are websites dedicated to uh, detracting and renouncing every major Christian apologist that you can think of, and that try and that go through books and respond chapter by chapter. So Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, uh, has been kind of like the the standard for Christian apologetics for for so long on the reliability of the Bible. There's an entire website called the The Verdict Is In, and in it wants to say that you know the the, the book is is rubbish, and they dedicate you know a critique to each chapter of the book. Mm. Well, none of that stuff was available in the past, and so now with and, and this is not to say the internet's bad. The internet can be wonderful. But it has exposed Christians to counter-arguments that they've never heard of before ever. And sometimes people find these particularly persuasive and powerful. So that's the the first reason. The second reason is because we live in a culture that, um, you know, the the grain of our, the moral grain of our culture and the moral sensibilities that we're being uh, sort of raised to adopt often run counter-cultural to the teachings of the Bible. On a number of issues. And so it's really hard, I think, for people who feel things deeply inside about the way they should, that the way they think the world should be, to hold in their minds beliefs that are contrary to that, that they've been taught about the Bible, uh, for very long. And and I think the combination of of our world and in the United States kind of continually moving, perhaps if you want to call it left or progressive ideals more liberal and uh, the access that people have to kind of counter arguments now I think make it uh, a lot more challenging to hold on to the faith than when I was you know you know young and naive and didn't and everyone kind of believed had the same sort of moral common ground um, all of that has shifted so it makes it really difficult I think for young people to say this is what I think the truth is when uh, it doesn't line up with what your culture is telling you,
0: and that's really fascinating and um, yeah you're, you're totally right you know just the whole um, availability with the information on the internet just kind of um, just kind of broadens things out a little bit um, and you know unfortunately you know a lot of Christians have put kind of these straw man arguments uh, forward that are, are, are pretty easily to pick apart you know and um, uh, man so what John, what can we do to reverse this trend? Um, that, uh, uh, I mean, is the answer, like, <laughs> just get off the internet? You know, is the answer, you know, just surround yourself with more Christian, um, uh, you know, knickknack stuff and books? I mean, is there anything fruitful that we can do to um, uh, equip, uh, navigate uh, out of this stage without being kind of falling into this pit? Like, what, do you, what have you seen that is, is actually working?
1: Well, one of the things that it seems like um, from, from talking with folks and from listening to their stories and from kind of just what I, I've said a few minutes ago um, about the importance of, of how our culture influences us and being able to affirm uh, beliefs is that a, a lot of folks who tend to, to walk away started out with a very rigid, inflexible set of beliefs that they believed that they had to affirm from top to bottom. Otherwise they couldn't genuinely be a Christian. Uh, they believed that they had to affirm things with absolute certainty. And if they didn't affirm all of them, then it was an all or nothing kind of a package deal. I actually met with a former student, uh, of mine who said to me, Hey, look, I'm having some, some difficulty. Um, she said, um, I'm, I'm wondering, do you believe with 100% certainty, everything about Christianity? And I said, well, what do you, what do you mean by, by everything? She's like, well, you know, all of your Christian beliefs, do you think they're hundred percent true? And I said, no. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I I think I'm probably wrong about some things. Uh, I have high degree of, of confidence in some, lower degree of confidence in others. And she said, well, what about the resurrection? She said, if I wasn't 100% certain the resurrection took place, I couldn't be a Christian. And um, that was concerning to me because Mm. while I think the resurrection is essential for people to be a Christian, I don't think that believing in the resurrection with 100% psychological certainty is necessary to be a Christian.
0: Mm.
1: I think that having enough reasons to be persuaded is all that you need. And then, You need to cast yourself upon that and trust that it's true, to live in such a way that it's true, Um, that we're not saved by the amount of confidence that we have, but we're saved because we're pledging our allegiance, we're pledging our trust to the person of Jesus, and we have enough reason to think that he did these things. And so her faith was very rigid, very inflexible, and she believed she had to believe. All of the things that she had been taught are Christianity. Otherwise, she couldn't be a Christian at all. So the first thing I would say would be is that when I approach my own kids, I try and help them recognize what are the essential core beliefs that Christians have held for a long, long, long time. And and I say, look, these are the ones that are really important that we want to go deep on. And the other ones, you have some real flexibility in, under, in, in, in trying to understand those in a way that might um, make a bit more sense to you. So, for example, um, my son, who's 13, I, I talk to him a lot about uh, sort of the first few chapters of Genesis because he's been told that, that Genesis has to be literally six days. Otherwise, the rest of the Bible is not true. Because the Bible means what the Bible says. Now, we did not tell him that. That came from outside of our home. And I've gently tried to say, but you know what? That's not necessarily true. Like, if you go off to university and become convinced that evolution took place, you can still be a Christian. Because being a Christian is not dependent on what you believe about how God created the world. It's about what your loyalty and your faith is in Jesus. Now, if you become convinced that evolution is true, that's going to have some ripple effect throughout the rest of your theology. I don't doubt that. And I wouldn't push you in that direction. But there are good Christians who believe that God has used sort of a theistic process and has brought us to the place where we are today through this process of, of, of evolution. Not a Darwinian non-directed process, but a process nonetheless. And I don't push that on him. And I don't tell him that's what I believe, because that's not what I believe. But I want him to know, that it's not an either or it's not literal six day or you can't be a Christian. It is, well, you can be a Christian, but there's going to be some thinking that you're going to have to do on on this topic. And there are other Christians who have done some thinking on this topic as well. So I want to make sure I pass on a faith that is deep on the core issues, Mm -hmm. like Nicene Creed kind of things. Who is God? Who is Jesus? Who is the Holy spirit? and then allow him with some direction and some guidance to think through some of these other issues without him thinking that he can never change his mind on them. Or otherwise it'll be like pulling a card out of house of cards and the whole thing just collapses. So that would be the first thing is to try and pass on a a flexible and stable faith rather than an inflexible, uh, fragile faith that um, is ready to teeter and, and fall over. If any one of the beliefs um, is is found to be, um, you know, you become convinced isn't true. So that would be number one.
0: If a church were to come to you, a church leadership, and say, John, um, you know, we're we're seeing a uh, a lot of people kind of deconverting. Um, what, you know, what, how can we go about doing ministry um, that would be more fruitful in in uh, making our, our people? Uh, be able to be more resilient in their faith and not um, uh, kind of go, go down this this rabbit hole that ends, ends poorly for them. What, what, would there be any advice would, that you would have for churches and church leaderships?
1: Yeah, I, I think that there, there would be some things. I think that one, one way to do it is to avoid some of the problems that will eventually creep up, sometimes because of access to, to information that no one would have had in the past. And um, I think we can do that by, by inoculating uh, folks. So, you know, if you read, I mean, sorry, if you um, think of the vaccine today, people are getting vaccinated. And traditionally, the, the traditional way that vaccines were created was to take a little bit of the dormant uh, part or the, the non-living aspect of a vaccine and inject it into your body so it would produce antibodies. So in case you ever got the, the real thing, your body would be ready to, to fight it. And um, I think we can do the same thing by uh, inoculating believers to avoid error before they they uh, get started. And mm. and one of those I think that's really helpful. Maybe maybe the most important is when it comes to the to the Bible itself. Mm. You know, I grew up, and this is no one's fault. Um, it's just the way that things were. Uh, kind of just assuming the Bible kind of just fell out of heaven uh i didn't know it had a backstory i never thought to question where it came from how it got put together who wrote it i mean the names of the guys who wrote it are all written on the first page of each book like why would i ever even think anything different and um of course this is god's word he gave it to us but i didn't realize that there was a history to it so when young people get exposed to the history of the of the bible Higher criticism, lower criticism, how it was put together, who the authors are, some of the questions that people have raised about it. Uh, I, I think that's very difficult for them and very challenging because they're saying, wait a minute here. Like, I was told that Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Now you're telling me that sort of the majority of uh, secular scholarship doesn't think that, that Matthew actually wrote it? Uh, why why did anyone tell me this before? Why do we think that Matthew did write it? And who's got the better reasons here? So I think that exposing people kind of to where the Bible came from, how it was put together, uh, that it's the word of God, but it also has human fingerprints all over it Mm. is really helpful. So my my son, again, is 13, and and he understands that the New Testament letters were written to different people and that they were copied and that errors crept into the copies and that eventually you can kind of figure out what those, you know, the original said by looking at the errors. so he's heard enough of this, and it's very, it's not a directed uh, sit down, I'm going to teach you a lesson, son, kind of interaction mm-hmm. that we have, but more kind of casual, so that when he hears later on, or he comes across some website, he's not going to go, what? He's going to say, yeah, I, I, I've known this for years, and I know that there are answers to it, and I know there are people who have read it, they wrestled with it, so this doesn't even faze me. So that would be... Number one. The second thing would be actually to teach the whole Bible Mm -hmm. and to talk about it. Uh, It's easy to skip over a lot of the hard passages and uh, ignore those. It's hard to address hell. It's hard to address uh, various versions of predestination, depending on what your your theology is. It's hard to know how to explain why God said wipe all these folks out in the Old Testament in a way that... um, is not really grading to our modern moral sensibilities those are all challenging but if we don't address those someone else is going to address those and and it's not going to be healthy it's not going to be good you want your kids i know this is a weird analogy but you want your kids to hear about sex from you you don't want them to hear it from playboy magazine or some porn site you want to be able to give them the best lens to see it through so i think that's helpful i think we want to provide nuanced uh, understandings uh, uh, of doctrines right so for example um, I, you know I, I didn't realize this growing up, but there, there are a lot of folks who think that hell is literal. There are a lot of Christian folks who think that hell is a real place but it's not necessarily a literal burning firing fiery pit. There are some people who hold views that say you know that it is literal and it is torment but it's not physical, it's more emotional. Yeah, there are people who say that. So there's a bunch of different views of people who hold the Bible in high regard, who think that it's inspired in God's word, but have been, have done some really good thinking on it and have said, um, the view that you've been given as a child, sort of like this flannel graph view of heaven, this flannel graph view of hell um, may need to be nuanced a little bit, may may need to be, uh, it's a little bit more complex than maybe what you thought. And, and maybe it's not as, uh, as offensive as, as you think about it, because um, you might have some expectations and assumptions that don't line up with maybe with what the Bible actually says. So I, I think that we can kind of uh, uh, avoid setting folks up for, for problems if we do those things. And lastly, I think we can avoid it by by giving them good theology that says that um, as a Christian, life is not always going to be easy. Life is not always going to be good. In fact, it's going to be difficult and hard and there will be many times when you wonder where God is and what he's doing in your situation, and you might be tempted to think that he's not there. Um, yes, God does love you, and he has a good plan for your life, but the way you define good and the way he defines good won't always line up with one another. And so um, know that in advance. Jesus says, I tell you these things in advance so that your faith will not fail in John chapter 16, that you're going to have hardship, you're going to have trouble. Um and, and I think if, if people, you know, can, can know that in advance when hardship and trouble comes, they can say, oh, i kind of in some way been expecting this. And, and it shouldn't count against God's goodness because, well, I've kind of been made aware that this is the experience of the Apostle Paul. This is the experience of the Apostle Peter. Uh, this is the experience of Jesus. So why should I think any different? Well, kind of because I've grown up in the United States or Canada or the West. So i been told that being a Christian means you're going to have a great, happy easy life and you should never go through hardship because God loves you. And that's just not true.
0: Mm, yeah. It would be nice if it worked out like that, you know, <laughs> but that's not how it, not how it happens. That's good. I, I mean, I, I love, um, and there's so many things that you said, um, I mean, uh, with, you know, um, you know, vaccinations, you know, getting um, a little bit of familiarity with, um, the ideas that are out there uh, you know, wrestling with it as a church, Um, together that's the that's the best place to do that you know and um, that's really 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 helpful and um, uh, it's helpful as a kind of as a preacher you know thinking about how do I want to you know craft some of my own messages making sure that I'm not just giving this um, uh, the one I guess one side of it that I can you know also bring in some other uh, ideas Um, not necessarily to teach those ideas, but just to kind of counterbalance and let people know, Hey, this is what's out there. You know, <laughs> you're not going to be shocked by this.
1: And your reference to the church, I think is a really important one because other than, and sort of the intellectual heady things that I, I just talked about, the, there are some uh, other social uh, and, and interpersonal things, I think that are almost, if not even more important. And and one of those is being immersed in, in a really good community. We all need these, um, sort of uh, authoritarian communities, these communities that we're a part of and that make the beliefs that we have more plausible because the community itself believes them and upholds them and lives by them. And if you're in a community that you really like, if you have a great youth leader and you have a great youth experience and you have uh, good friends that go to that church and you look at the adults in that church and they're loving and they're kind, and they're living out, you know, this faith and they're caring for people that goes a long way to really reinforcing the truth of, of, of Christianity, mm-hmm. um, being involved in, in, in a, in a really good church, one that's not, you know, overly legalistic one that's really living out values, which is even more important to uh, young people today than it would, would ever have been to me growing up. I mean, growing up, all I cared about was whether or not, uh, you know, everyone was using Using the King James version, I didn't care if anyone was feeding the poor. Um, I cared about truth and doctrine. And and if I was growing up as a Gen Zer, I would be caring about whether or not people are authentically living out their faith. And so communities that do that are incredibly powerful. But the most uh, the relationship that brings the most impact and has the the most long lasting effects is that of parents. Uh, studies repeatedly show that credibility enhancing behaviors. Uh, help pass on a faith that is sustainable. Mm. Uh, parents who raise kids and their faith is kind of nominal and like, oh yeah, we're going to go to church, but you know, their kids know they don't pay the taxes and the kids know that they have road rage and their kids know that uh, they gossip on the phone and their kids know that they don't really care about the poor or, or people who are hurt. That actually is a detriment to passing on the faith. But conversely, parents who live out their faith is the number one uh, reason why uh, faith is maintained and faith is is passed on and uh, it's because um, it's attractive it's because when they get out when people get out into the world and people say Christians are a bunch of hypocrites and they're a bunch of intolerant judgmental folks they go it doesn't really resonate with me hmm. my parents were having you know people over all the time they were uh, you know they gave their they gave money they were at church they were bringing people over for meals like They helped out the homeless. They were involved in other social activities that were, you know, that that cared about compassion, mercy, and justice. And and, and that makes a huge, huge difference. So, one thing that parents can do is be authentic and live out a Christian life and get kids involved in a community that has other adults in it that they look up to and that they admire. Um, And those go a long way into helping people retain their faith.
0: Man, one of the things I, that that you just kind of brought to my mind and I was I was shocked by this and at the same time not shocked by this but you talk about how it, with 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 kids who are deconverting um, one, one of the common um, trends is the I guess the the not absence of the father but the the lack of involvement of, of dads do you want do you want to kind of share a little bit about that is, is there anything um, that you want to say there
1: well, it, it does seem that 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 psychology, to the degree or or not degree that you find it um, a, a valuable uh, discipline, has at least discovered some helpful insights about the way that we we think. And 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 one of those is it. It really does seem that we often project onto God or other authority figures. Um, a view that we've picked up from the authority figures early on in our life and sometimes we attach in insecure ways sometimes we attach in in fearful ways to to other people so you can think of folks maybe who have a really hard time keeping in a relationship for whatever reason you know if you you talk to them enough you'll start to find out that maybe they're fearful of being in a relationship because of commitment etc and then if you you know, you, you you talk long enough, and maybe they go to therapy. They might find out that the, the reason why they have a hard time having relationships with other folks is because they had a hard time relation, having a relationship with their own parents. That they were always fearful because the way their parent, the the parenting style was 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 um, dependent on uh, the the love was dependent on behavior, or the attention was dependent on uh, on whether or not you were doing the right kinds of things. And and we eventually sort of project these uh uh kind of caricatures sometimes on god Mm. the the authority figures that we have in our life the way they've parented us the way that they've been in our lives we unconsciously project on onto god and 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 fathers play a really huge role in that because god is seen as a father figure we look at god as a father figure and and sometimes I'm almost hesitant to to use God as a father figure to people who I know who have had really bad experiences with their father because all they know about fathers is is bad or that God you know their father was absent, and when when that happens it's hard to connect and to actually bond with God who is a primary father figure and in that regard uh, I think that 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 fathers play a a, a really huge role and, and, and if you're an overbearing hard judgmental, angry father, you can almost guarantee that that's the way your child will see God. Mm. And even if they consciously know that that's not the case, even if they're consciously aware of all of the verses that talk about grace and mercy and love, there will still always be this underlying, but for all the 10 verses I read about grace, I found, that there's this one that says, you know, God was angry with them. And that's the one, mm. one where they emotionally get attached to. If you're a parent who is just laissez faire and hands off and don't care. And you know, then there will be that. Then, then God will probably be seen as a God who doesn't really care a whole bunch, and, and you can do whatever you want. He never gets upset, and, and and that's why parents play a really major role in our relationship with God because we are kind of their um, their the first experience with um, with an authority figure, and God is the ultimate one. So, yeah.
0: Man john that goes right to the heart <laughs> oh man i'm 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 so imperfect as a pastor as a as a as a dad as a husband you know the thought of um the first you know the the role that i have you know is, is going to be um uh, affect and influence my kids and how they see god you know the only thing that i could think is, man. Um, you know, may, may God have mercy on, on my kids, you know?
1: <laughs> I, I'm right. I'm right there with you. I think about it, you know, when I lose my temper or I'm driving and I say, Oh, I can't, will this guy ever get out of the way, you know, he's driving in two lanes or, you know, and I start being critical and negative and I just say, Oh Lord, please forgive me and change me mm. because I know that my kids see you through the lens of me. And, mm. um, and, um, Uh, You would, uh, you would, you would not be surprised to find out that a significant number of people who walk away from the faith come out of very legal, very rigid, very domineering backgrounds, Mm -hmm. where of course they can never live up to expectations, and um, it becomes almost like a millstone around their neck. And there's this feeling of great relief and freedom when they do leave the faith, because now they're they've been uh, liberated from from that weight scary thing to think about as a parent.
0: No kidding. No kidding. John, are you as you kind of um look into the crystal ball of the future, um are you hopeful or are you kind of concerned with where things are heading?
1: Both. Um I'm always hopeful because I know that God is always you know on mission. I know that God is always uh, his eyes are, you know, roaming to and fro throughout the earth to find those whose hearts are fully His. It says, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in Chronicles. I think it's Chronicles. Maybe it's Kings. And uh, and 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 so I know that uh, God's not finished doing what He's doing. I, it does seem as though that uh, that we are heading into kind of a, a more secular society. We're we're definitely moving in values and beliefs much more uh, away from a christian uh, worldview i i don't i don't see those numbers changing barring uh, the spirit of god in other parts of the world it's the it's the exact opposite it's the reverse uh, deconversion is not a massive trend in the philippines it's not a massive trend in china right these are places where um where where people are coming to know the lord and the church is growing and in that regard i'm positive i'm positive in my smaller circles, right, with the folks that I have influence over and, and the people who are in my church and, and my students. I'm, I'm positive because I feel as though um, there are some resources and, and I can leverage those and I can be a, an influence for good and I can have these conversations. But in the broader spectrum of where the church is heading in, in the West and in the United States, um, I'm not um, I'm not optimistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the trend will continue. I think it will continue uh, to, to grow. And I think the church will, will get smaller, but in having, but in saying that, that, that may not necessarily be um, a bad thing because um, the, the question is um, were the people who were identifying as Christians, were these really just nominal folks to begin with? And it didn't take much for them to just say, Hey, I don't want to have anything to do with this because now it's becoming uncomfortable for me. And if that's the case, then sort of a purging takes place or a pruning takes place. And what you might end up with is maybe a better reflection of the body of Christ rather than um, maybe what we have had now with a, a lot of people who are identifying but, but aren't living, you know, in, in, in a way that, that reflects what Jesus calls us to.
0: Mm. Man, well, thanks for sharing that, John. Um the um, the book, and I would so highly recommend it. It has been, um, it's depressing, but very, um, very helpful, very revealing. It's The Anatomy of Deconversion, uh, John Marriott. Highly recommend that to parents, to church leaders, um, to Christians just in general, or even if you've kind of walked away from your faith and um, you want to reevaluate things. I would so strongly Um, recommend it. John, I want to say thank you very much for writing this book. This has helped me become a better pastor. Um, John, is there anything that any last things that you want to
1: say? Uh, Sure. Um, I'm really um, sort of really loathe self-promotion, but um, I do have a new book coming out and uh, I'm not exactly sure when it is, but maybe I can get you an advanced copy. Um, And uh, it's called Before You Go. Uncovering mm-hmm. hidden factors in faith loss, and it tries to look at the maybe some of the the reasons that we're not always aware of that could be driving our our doubts. Because for the most part, when you talk with someone who says, "Why did uh, why do you leave the faith?" they say, "Well, because it's not true, it's not reasonable, it doesn't make sense anymore," and it's often cashed out in intellectual cognitive terms. But I'm suspicious of that. And I actually think that, well, that can be the case. Those are, those reasons are sort of like the top of the iceberg that you can see out of the water, but the part of the iceberg that's underneath the water is always much bigger and you're never really aware of it. And, um, until you run into it. And so this book is, is, wants to say, before you leave, before you walk away from your faith and decide you're done with it, um, read this book and 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 see if, if maybe some of the reasons that you have aren't as, as good as you think they are. It's not an apologetics book. It's not providing answers to like the resurrection is reliable, but it wants to say this. Is it possible that maybe you've had some expectations and assumptions that weren't met, but mm. maybe you should never have had those to begin with? Um, is it possible that maybe your problem with Christianity is not intellectual, but there could be some real emotional reasons that are driving this that get cashed out in intellectual terms, but really that's not the problem. And, and so if you can rethink some of these um, kind of under the hood issues that are maybe off of your radar, then perhaps um, it can dissipate some of the objections that you think are, are really driving this deconversion. So the hope is, is to just slow the ship that's heading away from the harbor down enough. Hmm. Have people pause and say, yeah, okay, that's a good point. And then maybe that someone else can come along and say, okay, like, can we maybe start heading back to the harbor now? Mm. Because if you had an expectation that God was going to make your life great and he didn't, well, maybe your expectation was wrong. And so you shouldn't be disillusioned and angry with God because he never promised that. That's the kind of thing that it says. Maybe you had expectations of the Bible that didn't come true. Like you thought that the Bible was kind of a magic book and it's not a magic book. Yeah. Um, it, it, that's kind of what it is. So that will be out in about a, a like a, in a in a few more months and I'll get you a copy and and you know advance copy sent to you if you're interested in
0: it. 100%. John, yeah. you don't have to you don't have to twist my arm. I would absolutely love um to read that and maybe we can do a kind of a part 2 and I can we can talk about that book on the podcast.
1: Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah.
0: John, um again, thank you so so much for taking the time to talk with um Uh, our audience about uh, your book, The Anatomy of Deconversion. Um, I hope you guys will go and and get it and uh, read it and uh, be able to grow and be better uh, disciples ministering in our world.
1: Thank you, John. Thank you very much for having me. Much appreciated. Anytime.
0: For me as a pastor and a parent, I can't think of a more important conversation to have than this one. I mean, people walking away from the Christian faith, uh, deconverting or deconstructing, while it may look trendy culturally, it is painful personally on both sides of the fence. Many describe their experience as agonizing. I mean, we we see we have seen families split apart, friendships crumble, marriages end, and people experiencing an identity crisis. And part of the way through these murky waters is not coming up with a new, different, or culturally adapted Christian faith, but simply living out the Christian faith. Um, speaking to parents, John writes, He writes these words, he says, parents who live authentic Christian lives in front of their children have a much greater chance of their children retaining their Christian faith. It must be stressed that it is in the living out of the belief where the transfer occurs. Merely professing to believe in God or Christianity is not sufficient to effectively passing on the faith. And so to the Christians kind of in general, my encouragement is to act more true to what the Bible teaches, to to live it, to show it, and let those beliefs weigh in on your daily decisions, even if that means not getting a promotion or extending retirement a little bit longer. Let your faith matter in all areas of your life. And to those who feel like, you know, my parent has failed me, Um, what, what I, what I, what I didn't realize until I became a parent is that as a parent, it feels like you're building a plane as you're flying it in the air. Life happens and it happens fast. The instruction manual on being a good parent or being a parent, it was never given to any one of us. And so as, as a parent, we can look back and we can see all of the things that we could have, would have, should have done and rather than looking at the mistakes of your parent the mistakes your parents have made you should have a more grace-filled approach to them rather than maybe a dismissive one that seems to be common in the world maybe a conversation is needed to be had Oh, I mean, one day you will fail. And, and when we fail, we have to ask ourselves, how do we want others to respond to us in our failure? Do we want it to be with guilt, with guilt trips, with judgment, or with grace and forgiveness? Live more true biblically means choosing grace and forgiveness Well, I just want to say a big thank you to John for taking the time to talk with us about his book, The Anatomy of Deconversion. Uh, Be sure to check out the show notes to follow the links to uh, his website and his book. Well, I hope that this conversation has helped you in your life so that you can make a greater impact with your life. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time.